Rebellion Dogs Radio is a 21st century look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, episode 14. I'm glad you're here. We'll be hearing from Ernie Kurtz and Bill White about the variety of recovery experiences. We'll be hearing through the voice of Meryl Streep, the spiritual message of recovery or the recovery of one's humanity through a story called The Velveteen Rabbit. A spiritual experience can be the same thing as a personal relationship with reality. The material world and the spiritual world, the non-material world, like yin and yang, are not exactly opposites. John Bellamy explains on TED, each contains the seed of the other. The dark yin swirl contains the dot of the light yang swirl, and the white yang swirl has the dot of the black yin. Bellamy says that the Taoist symbol explains that yin and yang are relative to each other. You know, just to kick off the show, let's give Blamey a couple of minutes to explain his point himself. This is from his TED Talk. You might have seen this symbol before, whether it's as a temporary tattoo or at a Chinese temple. It's called the yin-yang symbol. It comes from Taoism, a religion born in China, and it has far more meaning than you probably realize. The yin is the dark swirl and the yang is the light one, and each side has a dot of the opposite color, which gives a clue to the meaning of yin and yang. Everything contains the seed of its opposite. Darth Vader has the seed of goodness, and Luke has the potential to follow his father to the dark side. Like Luke and his father, yin and yang are not total opposites. They are relative to each other. Taoism teaches that there is a power in the universe, higher, deeper, and truer than any other force. They call it the Tao. It means the way. Like the force in Star Wars, the Tao has two sides. Unlike other religions where the higher power is all good and perhaps has an all evil rival, Taoism teaches that we need to learn from both yin and yang. And unlike religions with gods that are personal, the higher power in Taoism is not. Taoists believe that living in harmony with the way, a person will not have to fight against the universe's natural flow. So, for example, listen more, argue less. Be ready to back up or undo something, and you will make even faster progress. Don't worry about being the best. Be who you are. Live simply. Complications take you away from the Tao. The wise person is flexible. Taoists say. Learning to use the Tao is what Taoism is all about. And that's why you should know your yin from your yang. Here's some uh, context to today's show. I'm on the verge of a journey. I'm going to New York City. There, I'll visit AA archives to do some research on atheists and agnostics in AA. I'll attend Book Expo America to learn more about the publishing industry and to talk with a couple of other authors. I'll be sharing those conversations with you in future episodes. I'll be sharing my research findings in future episodes, too. Since last show, 
I've been to a memorial for a mentor of mine, Ernie Kurtz. I got to celebrate his life and legacy with Roger C. of AA Agnostica, Linda Kurtz, his widow, his dog, his family, and many of his colleagues and collaborators were there. Catherine Ketchum was there. Those two authors first met to collaborate on The Spirituality of Imperfection. After articulating this great fact that the human experience, call it spiritual if you like, is making peace with our incompleteness, the here and now, instead of waiting to live a life of perfection. Ketchum and Kurtz later collaborated to reinforce the idea that spirituality can't be understood in the way that an intellectual process can help us understand something. Spirituality has to be experienced. The example is given of describing what a rose smells like. Go ahead. If we understand it, we should be able to explain it to another. Let's use all of our language and all of our metaphors at our disposal. Or can we only recognize the smell of a rose? Maybe that would have been a better way to explain the AA steps. Maybe a higher power is something we recognize in our world, not something we understand, or a higher purpose, if you prefer. Ernie wrote, Knowledge is primarily a method. It seeks to attain truth by experiment and aims at exactness, focusing on quantity, asking how much. Knowledge produces experts. Wisdom is a vision. It sees truth by understanding, is concerned with adequacy and focusing on qualities. Wisdom questions what kind of and produces artists. So artists instead of experts. So recovery is more a craft than a science, isn't it? It certainly isn't an intellectual concept or practice. I met Bill White at this memorial. He's worked closely with Ernie Kurtz for many years. Many of you know that. We'll hear a snippet of the legacy of Ernie Kurtz, and I'll happily guide you to where you can hear and see more with Bill White and Ernie Kurtz for free. Great truths of the world are found in our songs, our poems, our stories, our fiction, and some of our nonfiction we read may or may not be. It's just a label, not a fact. Here's an example of how, for real truth, we ought to turn to fiction. While Ernie Kurtz's body of work has shaped me through the years, I only recently got to know him personally. And most of you know he wrote the foreword to Beyond Belief, Agnostic Musings for 12-Step Life. He read it. He offered an unsolicited review, which I was taken aback by, and it became the foreword to the second printing of the first edition. Dr. Ernie Kurtz, when we spoke, was a bit aggravated that while he insisted that I call him Ernie, I almost always called him Dr. Kurtz. I still don't embrace the idea of being confused as peers. He was a great teacher, a brutal literary journalistic critic, and he was a gifted storyteller. As a historian and commentator, he had an ability to tear something apart and expose its 
imperfection, its incompleteness, and still be in awe at its beauty. An author and anthropologist, Joseph Campbell, was very much like that. That's the best thing I learned from him. You can't just tell a story. It needs context of what else is going on at the time. Here's a, a story for context. The memorial for Ernie Kurtz was at Don Farm in Michigan near Ann Arbor where Ernie Kurtz and his wife Linda both lived and worked. Don Farm is a community that provides detox, residential services, outpatient services, and more. Ernie was no stranger to this facility. Don Farm president Jim Balmer graciously made the facility available for our memorial. Bill White moderated the remembrance for Ernie. Father Terry Dumas gave a homily, and many of us were granted the opportunity to publicly remember Ernie. Ernie's younger sister, Marianne Allen, read something that bonded her brother and her. It was a charming example of how this scholar, researcher, and storyteller could find great truth anywhere. Marianne read from The Velveteen Rabbit, How Toys Become Real. With uh, George Winston on piano and Meryl Streep narrating, let me share with you what Marianne dedicated to the memory of her brother Ernie. As we listen, let's ask ourselves if this or could this be the story of recovery from addiction to finding or regaining our humanity? Is this or is this not the story of AA? So, from the Velveteen Rabbit, over to Meryl Streep. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. He knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understand all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Mm, sometimes, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily, or who have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. I suppose you are real. And then he wished he had not said it, 
for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real. That was a great many years ago. But once you are real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. <sighs> the rabbit sighed. He thought it would be a long time before this magic called real happened to him. He longed to become real, to know what it felt like. And yet, the idea of growing shabby and losing his eyes and whiskers was rather sad. He wished that he could become it without these uncomfortable things happening to him. I don't mind telling you I cried when I heard it again. I say again, this was a story I took great joy in reading to my son. This is a story, my story, of what it takes and what it means to be real. I was perilously close to being someone or something that doesn't become real. It doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. I'm on the eve of going to AA archives where Ernie Kurtz has traveled before me. Many fellow AA historians remarked at his memorial at how Ernie, this gentleman and professional, paved the way for others to research Alcoholics Anonymous. I feel humbled to follow in these footsteps. I'm researching some of the history of AA and our relationship with members who don't buy into the theistic narrative of addiction and recovery. May 16th, 2015, the grapevine quote of the day was this. Many people who believe wonder what atheists do when tough things befall us. To whom do we turn if not God? I turn to friends and reason and experience of the past. I now think, based on previous events, that the odds are I will get through whatever comes in my life until it ends. This is from a member named June from El Granada, California. It was in Grapevine, April 1991. It was called Listening for the Reality. She writes, I do not assign all life events to the work of an unseen something or someone who distributes situations as tests, perhaps, to struggling humans. I accept that some adversities simply occur in normal living, and I try to make the best of them. My view of these events, which benefit our lives, often called miracles in AA, is similar to my attitude on misfortune. I think that not all events can be explained with respect to a reason or purpose. They are simply random phenomena, the luck of the draw. A large percentage of occurrences, however, are the result of cause and effect, and the causes that affect sobriety seem obvious. When I stopped using alcohol, which distorts thought and emotion, a healing process began. When I went to meetings associated with sober sane people and incorporated their way of living into my own actions, the logical result was an improved life through sobriety. Recovery is inevitable, not miraculous under such a course. It would have been a miracle if the chaos of alcoholism had not abated and my life had not improved. She also shares with us that 
In retrospect, I see that there are at least five points that have enabled me to stay in AA as an atheist. One, I don't defend or explain the reason for my atheism. I just share what I do to stay sober. Two, I don't attack the belief of those who are comfortable with the idea of God. Three, I haven't abandoned AA because of the jargon that muddles the ideas with terms that offend me. Four, I work out translations of ideas so they are compatible with my thinking. And five, I try to work within AA to show by example that sobriety and atheism are not mutually exclusive. I have a personal commitment and I think it helped me not to drink early on and it helps me still. Especially I try not to trouble myself with the language of the program. Sometimes I'm uneasy when people talk about God's will or when they suggest that I pray, but I try to tune that part out. Instead, I listen to the reality of what they are describing. I keep working on doing what makes sense. After all, sobriety is the real goal of the AA principles and steps. So that was written in 1991. You know, for many of us, the idea of a personal God guiding our life and our recovery is as mythical as, well, the Velveteen Rabbit. Ketchum and Kurtz say this about myths. A myth is something that never happened because it's always happening. Days after I was at Ernie's funeral, I was asked to be a guest speaker at West Hill United Church. This congregation describes itself as progressive Christianity. They offer what they call a barrier-free congregation for post-theistic Christianity. I've referred before to the atheist minister Greta Vosper and her two books, With or Without God, Why the Way We Live is More Important Than the Way We Believe, 2008, and Amen, what prayer can mean in a world beyond belief, 2012. Of course, I was honored to speak to their congregation. If you think it's a challenge to hold your own as a godless AA group in an environment of contempt, fear, and intolerance, just try running a Christian church on the same grounds. I can feel some of you resisting the idea right now. Why call yourself a church without prayer, Christians, if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, why is that such a stretch? They believe in Christian values, and they don't have any use for the myths or dogma. I told them of how our atheist agnostic AA group is protected by the sixth warranty, that the AA service structure may act in the service of Alcoholics Anonymous. It shall never perform any act of government the AA traditions accord the individual member and the AA groups extraordinary liberties. In fact, we AAs probably enjoy more and greater freedom than any fellowship in the world. We claim this is no virtue. Because we set such a high value on our great liberties and cannot conceive that, that they will ever need to be limited, we here especially enjoin our general service conference to abstain completely from any and all acts of authoritative government which could in any way curtail AA's freedom. So I told them a little bit about AA and our structure 
and our story. The story was well received by this congregation. They took comfort that they were not alone, and like them, we AAs have suffered too, and that despite our current deadlock with our local intergroup, AA as a whole supports us. I shared at how our first international AA conference for freethinkers and atheists and agnostics. General Service Office came to witness this important step in AA's ongoing history and show their concern over the Toronto Intergroup breaking away from AA traditions and their concern for other groups, any groups, that face hostility from their local AA's such as Vancouver, Columbus, or any other. So, on the eve of this great adventure going to New York, I want to pay homage to Ernie Kurtz by playing a small segment of Reflections, Ernie Kurtz on the History of AA, Spirituality, Shame, and Storytelling with Bill White. Let's do it. Ernie, I'd like to go back and, and amplify some of our discussion about varieties of recovery experience. Could you talk a little bit about how those varieties increased as they went from Akron to New York to Cleveland and beyond? Well, I think that explosion after the war especially, that's one thing that helps me date it, because even within the city of Cleveland, they're, they're, it's the first real explosion. New York AA started really in either Brooklyn or upper New Jersey. Uh, right. We call New York AA. but. Uh, uh, Cleveland, there's a pamphlet that they published in Cleveland in, in 1946 that on AA in Cleveland, it's called. And uh, let me read you two paragraphs from, from it. Okay. AA groups are fundamentally little bands of people who are friends, who help, can help each other to stay sober. Each group, therefore, reflects the needs of its own members. The way a group is managed is the way its members want it to be managed for their common benefit. As a result, we have large groups, small groups, groups which have refreshments, groups which never have refreshments, groups which like long meetings, groups which like short meetings, social groups, working groups, men's groups, women's groups, groups that play cards, groups which specialize in young people, and as many other varieties as there are kinds of people. Each group has its own customs, its own financial problems, and its own method of operation. As long as it follows as a group the same principles AA recommends for individuals, unselfishness, honesty, decency, and tolerance. It is above criticism. And you know, this, this. That's beautiful, it, yeah. It's just this wide variety, and this is just one metropolitan Tell me again the date that was held. 1946, AA yeah. in, in Cleveland, right. 1946. It's just amazing to me that uh, you know, this in this short time, this happened. I speak earlier of having clan groups have clan bags with various social activities, right. probably. But this, uh, and as it spread around the country, this was just true in so many ways. I mean, there were groups that you wanted more of the spiritual, for example, and so perhaps would say a prayer or two at the mm -hmm. beginning of the There were groups that didn't want any of that God stuff, and yeah. they might say the Serenity Prayer, they might just open and close. And, mm -hmm. and every, except you know, the basic every member had a desire to stop drinking. Everything else was up to the members of the group. Yeah. And the other thing, group conscience, when they had it, there wasn't usually a regular group conscience meeting scheduled, although some groups scheduled regular Somebody wanted a group conscience yeah. meeting, they'd have one. It wasn't such a simple majority vote. They always would try almost the old Quaker uh, principle of, mm -hmm. you know, to find a, a 
something with which everyone could be happy, so no one would feel they'd been voted down. Again, some groups did have right. votes. You cannot generalize about this at all, but the general tendency had, was always in this direction, and uh, I just think it's an amazing part of the age longevity. Yeah, Ernie, let me let me transition if we can from. The, the, the concentrated work on not God and the work that's followed that to the work on spirituality. Mm. I'm very interested in how the work on that led to spirituality of imperfection began. Again, it's one of those AA coincidences, I think. Uh, I was interested, I was looking at the steps and especially with the burgeoning of therapy in the mid to late 1980s, the spirituality that was conveyed by the steps, it struck me, was, was the significant thing. And because I had some background theology, I had spent years in the seminary and then was a teaching fellow at Harvard Divinity School as a, sort of a sport during the, mm -hmm. while I was there, because one of my mentors was on the faculty there. I, I was interested in developing this, this thought, this line of thought. And I mentioned this to Father Jim Royce, a Jesuit priest who started the first college-level alcohol studies program at Seattle University. And, one of uh, the grand figures in our Yeah, field. one of the, yes. okay, that, with yeah. ethics, especially yes. with Dr. Yes. Bissell. Anyway, so he knew I was interested in this, and I chatted with him. I mean, if you're going to write about spirituality, you better talk to a Jesuit priest someplace <laughs> along the line. And, and so he knew this, and uh, this woman who lived in Walla Walla, Washington, of all places, Kathy Ketchum, had been Jim Milam's co-author in the book Under the Influence. Oh, yeah. And Kathy sort of had the same sense coming out of that that what, what that book lacked was something about spirituality. She didn't know a lot about it, but had that sense from the people she met. And so she, hearing that Father Royce, and of course Jesuit priest, he must know about spirituality, she called him and asked him would you know, he care to work with her in, on a project like this. And Jim said, no, but I think I know somebody I should call. And Kathy called me. And, you know, has this raised this possibility as a professional co-author, a skilled writer, uh, contact with an agent? And uh, so I, I was doing a lot of presenting at that time, and I had some connections with the Veterans Administration. There's a VA hospital in Walla Walla, and I pulled a few strings, and the VA invited me to give a presentation to the VA hospital <laughs> in, Walla Walla. in Walla Walla for their staff and, and the live people. And Kathy came along, and I always give things orally before I write them. I'm a speaker before I am a writer, which is one reason I've published so little probably, uh, especially since I've been off the road. But uh, Kathy sat in the back scribbling furiously all during the, the workshop that I was giving. And at the end, she said, I, you know, I think we've got to go. And I stayed for either two or three more days, I forget. And I was in a hotel and she came and she just spent the whole, she spent about 16 hours of the day with me. I thought, her husband was so marvelously tolerant, I thought so trusting. And we just, we just, you know, we hammered out an outline, decided what we were going to do. And I went back to, uh, I was living in Oxford, Michigan at the time. Mm -hmm. And she went back to her home in Walla Walla. And uh, we started exchanging manuscripts. This was the days really before email. Uh, and so while we wrote on computers, that guy was written on a typewriter, by the way. Yeah. Some people they don't realize how old I am. We, we sent, we'd mail back and forth using all the Air Express agencies. And uh, I can be difficult to work with. I just asked Kathy. I think I only had to send her flowers four times during our, our relationship. Where I realized that I had, had said something hurtful to her. Um, but we 
she is very thick skinned and we hammered out the book that became the spirituality of imperfection which amazingly it was published first in 1992 and there were six books published that year on spirituality and because the uh, editor at Bantam who had purchased our book left Bantam at just that time to go to there was, our book received no publicity no not one advertisement and you know, these other books came out with large names attached to them. And uh, what do you do? <laughs> so you play the hand you're dealt. And, uh, but you know, I'm fascinated. So they caught on. It's the only book published in 1992, though, it's still in print. I and mean, if you go to Amazon, it still will rank sometimes around the, between 2,000 and 3,000 in sales on a given day. That book tapped such a nerve in the culture. And I'm wondering if you have any sense of what it was that that, that book. F you know, sort of tapped in terms of the res incredibly broad response to that book. It seemed to really meet a kind of unique need for this culture at that, at that time and continues to do so. I think there are two things, and it's exactly like AA. First of all, the book is a book of stories. There are 99 stories in that book. It's not a book of exposition. Uh, I had especially a lot of rabbinic stories. Many people think that I'm Jewish. I'm, I'm Catholic if anyone's interested. Um, but I uh, had experience with rabbi friends who told me stories way back, and then these stories lingered in your memory. And I went out and sought them in the, well, my memory. I verified by looking them up in places. And uh, so I think the, the fact that the stories, uh, rather than the book being just expository, Whatever it had to say was mainly conveyed by stories, I think is the first, mm -hmm. which again, this is AA, which you yeah. learn from AA. Yeah. And then the second is I think the book um, did convey spirituality. I think there is, if you will pardon the metaphor, a thirst for spirituality mm -hmm. in the culture. And yet spirituality comes so often packaged in unattractive ways, uh, you know, the overt, aggressive, uh, mm -hmm extreme, one extreme or the other, and mm -hmm. just turns off people. And this, I, I think to, to the extent, again, following the example of AA and avoiding things that were extraneous, listen, the themes of that book came from what I got by listening at meetings. Mm -hmm. And that basically, uh, I kept going to AA and kept listening at meetings. For one thing, I found it tremendously personally enriching. I also I study, I cannot not study something is what it amounts to. And I started hearing these themes and, 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 and so I, I took those themes and wrote about those themes. What is spirituality? How do you recognize spirituality? Spirituality cannot be defined. It has to be experienced. And you know, one of the stories, the, one of the, the, the masters, uh, you know, the students saying, you know, can you, if you cannot explain it, it, it is not real. And the master's saying, you know, do you know the smell of a rose? Explain it. <laughs> uh, you know, this, there, are, there are things we cannot explain, and spirituality is one of them. So they, we see them in certain qualities and experiences. And one is the sense of release, the sense of being freed, which usually only comes by letting go of something, by freeing something. Mm -hmm. I think this is so clear, especially in alcoholism, the, the admission of powerlessness is the letting go of the need to be in control, from which comes this tremendous sense of freedom. Mm -hmm. And if, again, if you listen to the stories told by these people who are glowing with sobriety, so there is this release. There's this sense, this twofold thing I have been freed. Mm -hmm. you know, alcohol is a savage master for those addicted to it.
any substance. Mm -hmm. And the sense of being freed from that, that cunning, baffling, mm -hmm. powerful master, uh, which, which comes by letting go. And the pe most people not necessarily make that connection, but if you listen to their stories, that's yeah. there. Yeah. You know, you, you can't even say which comes first, but you always hear both. There is both an experience of, I have been freed. Not that I've won my freedom, I have mm -hmm. been freed. Mm -hmm. And also the experience of having let go of something that they thought they absolutely needed. Mm -hmm. Google www.williamwhite.com papers.com slash Ernie underscore Kurtz and you can see and hear the whole interview. I'm so moved by the uh, Cleveland 1946 description of the vastness of what AA and AA groups can be. Only our imagination limits us. So long as we sh all share a desire to stop drinking, what we reject adapt, copy, or create is our own business. I share the sentiment that people in AA can recognize who and what is real, what recovery is, what addiction is, even if we don't understand it. Here's something I understand about AA history. It isn't just something that happened way back then. It's happening right now. I'm on my way to research why none of what seems to be no less than seven requests to GSO to produce literature for atheists and agnostics in AA has led to no action that satisfies our non-theistic community inside AA and those that support us. But AA history is marching on. Yes, seven times GSO is told humanists, atheists, agnostics at all, sorry, not this time, the grapevine was asked to compile stories that have already been written. They already have stories by atheists and agnostics. Make them available in one book, AA General Service Conference said no. While the general service structure stalls when it comes to literature by self-defined AAs that are secular, humanist, agnostic, atheist, skeptical, educational variety, fellowship-based, non-theistic, whatever we call ourselves. Now, that's the bottom of our AA triangle. The top of the inverted triangle, the AA members themselves, they've assembled to do it for ourselves. Do tell stories by atheists and agnostics in AA by AA Agnostica. Experience, Strength, and Hope in about 180 pages. I think there's 30 stories, and it is dedicated to uh, Ernie Kurtz. He would have loved it. Members sharing experience, strength, and hope in classic AA tradition. Storytelling. No God, no problem. These members are doing it with or without faith in something more than a material world with or without the 12 steps of recovery, but all as AA members, because they have a desire to stop drinking or stay stopped. Visit rebelliondogspublishing.com. Go to bookstore and enjoy, as we have, the continuing history of AA. AA history is not something that happened way back then, as I said. It's not the codified story that was written way back then. AA evolves, and we're making history now. 
we are what will be remembered as 21st century AA history. According to Father Dumas, Ernie left us with, well, I'll call it a riddle. On the last time Father Terry Dumas and Ernie Kurtz spoke, Father Dumas shared with us that Ernie talked about a God of contingency. What is a contingent God? Well, you can appreciate that the Good Father in his homily, tried to explain what this is or is not in Catholic terms. But I just smiled. (laughs) I don't know exactly what it means either, but uh, I'm very amused with it, and I'm glad he left us with this to think about. A contingent God, what might that mean? If you figure it out first, well, come on the show, we'll tell everybody. Let's go out with a song, Hootie and the Blowfish. They covered a 5440 song called I Go Blind. Hootie did it in the year 2000. It was written in 1986. Every time I look at you, I go blind. In the morning, I get up and I try to feel alive, but I can't. I don't know what it is. Something in me just won't give it a chance. I think it's just that I feel more confused by the deal love has shown me. Little child, do you know that there's light and it's going to shine right through your eyes? What do you think that life is like? Every time I look at you, I go blind. Somewhere, somehow, in this song, some of the velveteen rabbit truth reverberates. The songwriter, Neil Osborne, his band, 5440, have a number of great songs. I'm going to play you one. Here's one that Neil Osborne told me on Indie Can Radio. was one of his great achievements. It's quite Taoist. It wraps up this episode nicely. It's about one day at a time. It's about living in the moment. This song, listen all the way through because it's part of the show... It's the money shot, the climax. It's called This Is Here, This Is Now. Nothing to believe 
To sources from everything that was borrowed for this show, visit rebelliondogspublishing.com and click on Rebellious Radio. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio once again. Twitter, Facebook, or news at rebelliondogspublishing.com. As always, we love to hear what you have to say. We'll talk again soon from New York City.